All right, if you got your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to Psalm 111. We're going to pull off a miracle and do three Psalms tonight. Or not, you know. But before we do, I'm going to teach you guys some, uh, some Hebrew. Everybody wants a Hebrew lesson, right? Okay, it's a pretty complicated word. Okay, so the first word is Hallel. Everybody can say that, right? Hallel. Lu. Yeah. So if we look at Psalm 111, that's the first word of the psalm. First word of the psalm. Hallel. Praise. Lu. Yah. Yah, the first three names of the Yahweh. First three letters. Yahweh. So uh, it means praise the Lord. So when we look, when we look at uh, Psalm 111, the phrase begins, praise the Lord. Now praise the Lord. The next three psalms all start with that. All three, in Hebrew, the word is hallelujah. You and I, we read praise the Lord. But now you know, praise the Lord is hallelujah. So when we look at it, when we, when, as we work our way through, the, the first two, okay, we got three psalms. Each three begins with hallelujah. The last one, Psalm 113, ends with hallelujah. The first two psalms, 111 and 112, are an acrostic. There are several acrostics in the psalms. Uh, the most famous is Psalm 119. Why is it so famous? It's the longest chapter in the Bible. Um, if, it, if, if the Lord allows us, we'll cover that in one night. We'll see. But these are easier. Each one is made up of 22 lines. It doesn't translate to the English that way. But each psalm is 22 lines long. And each one begins with the first letter, then the next letter, then the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it starts with the phrase, hallelujah, and then the acrostic begins. The first one, Psalm 111, is focused all on God. It is telling us about God, about His wondrous works, and it kind of is going to give us a, a description of what God's like. And then the next one, Psalm 112, also an acrostic, 22 lines, each one beginning with the next letter, of the Hebrew alphabet, begins with the same word, hallelujah, at the beginning. And then it tells us what the man of God looks like. And when we look at these two psalms, they fit together. It's kind of neat to be able to do a side-by-side study of them because if a man or woman is serving God, if, if the Lord God Almighty is the one to whom we say, I've bowed the knee to God, uh, I love Him, I serve Him, then we're going to be like Him. We just naturally start to take on some of the attributes of the people we love. You guys have noticed that before? Right? Uh, my wife does things she never did before. She does them now. She says it's all because of me. So uh, all her crankiness, all her bad attitude, all that stuff, those are things, if she, if she has any of that, those are all things she gets from me. So in a positive sense, when we look at the man who follows the Lord God, a man who serves God, all mankind, just so you know, all become like the God they serve. All man becomes like the God they serve. Now some men serve a God of death. And you can see that in life choices and worldview and the direction of where they're going. Uh, when we serve the Lord God Almighty, we serve the one true God, the, the holy and just God, as we see as we work our way through the Psalms. Those attributes should translate over to us, albeit not the same way that God is perfect, 
in all of those things, but they should be evident. So it's a great opportunity for us to take a look. Well, what is God like? And, and what should I see in my life? So he begins, verse 1, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. So the first thing that the psalmist declares is God, in essence, he's saying God's worthy of praise, and, and he mentions immediately what it is that the way we want to come to God. As we consider God, when we look at God, we want to understand Him, we want to know Him, we come to Him with an undivided heart. Whole heart, right? David was a man after God, why? Because what the Bible says, because he was a man after God's own heart, right? Undivided heart. When we look at the kings, remember that whole list of kings? Everybody with me? Uh, or if you haven't, you didn't do it with us, if you've ever read them, a lot of kings, right? Good king, bad king. What was the difference? Divided heart, undivided heart. An undivided heart, he followed the Lord. It's interesting, it's funny, because a friend of mine was having a conversation uh, with, uh, with somebody at work the other day, and they said, well, they were talking about politics, it's that time of year, right? Or the time of the world, whatever. Politics is... is on everybody's mind, they're talking politics, and the guy that he was speaking to said, well, you know what, I'm not, I'm not electing a preacher, I'm electing a president. Okay, but that, if, do you ever look at what God says a good leader is? First Kings, oh, let's do First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, all the first and seconds in the Old Testament. Doesn't God delineate between good king and bad king? What made a good king? He followed the Lord. How? All his heart. What made a bad king? Divided heart. Did what he wanted to do. Served whatever God he wanted to serve. And what was the result? Remember I told you, you become like the God you serve, right? So if I become like the God I serve, then that might be something you want to take into consideration when you're considering someone who's going to run the nation for four years. Don't you think? So anyways, as we look at it, we say, okay, this is what's supposed to be. The attitude of me when I look to God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 tells us that God's looking for one thing basically from everyone. What is that? That we love the Lord our God with how much of our heart? Whole heart, right? How much of our mind? How much of our strength? Okay, so he wants all of us, right? Lock, stock, and barrel? So, so the psalmist begins this journey looking at God, saying, look, when we come to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, when we come to Yahweh, we come with an undivided heart. I want to know you. I, I, I want to know you, what you say you are. Right? Now, what's that big journey? The journey of knowing God, where do, we, where do we do that? Is that some kind of a subjective trip where we just sit around and meditate and and we have feelings, and those feelings that we get through meditation is how we know God? How do we know God? Has He revealed Himself to us? It's impossible for mankind to know God apart from God condescending and revealing Himself to us. And God has condescended to us, and He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. Jesus, speaking of this Word, said what? Not one jot or tittle will pass away, until all the things written in this book have been fulfilled. So either Jesus lied. If you think that's true, then you might be wasting your time here. Or, Jesus is who he said he is, and that statement was true. Which means, that's true. 
So I come to you, Lord, and I say, I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to understand you. I want to be able to praise the Lord with all my heart. Where? In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The book of Hebrews, chapter 13, tells us, Do not, the for, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. You guys ever heard somebody say, I'm just not into organized religion? Let me repeat that verse for you. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. Where does that verse come from? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. What's it say? It says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Let's say you're an elk. Can you picture that for a moment? You're, you can even be an elk in the prime of your life. Where do you think you're better off? In a herd of three, four hundred elk? Or by yourself? Well, you might say, I might be okay by myself. Okay, now let's add something into the equation. Eight wolves. What group you want to be in? I can guarantee you, guarantee, I don't care how big the bull, how strong the bull, how young the bull, eight wolves is more than enough to take any elk down. And if you're by yourself, that's easy pickings. You're in a herd, what, you might be okay, because he's going to pick the slow fat guy like me. I'm going to be in the back, I'm eaten by the wolves, everybody else might, they're going to be okay. So, what's the point that God in His Word is telling us? What's He saying? Man, you guys got to stay gathered together. Why? Because we get stronger, not some, you know, we got to learn to get along. You, you know that? How's a family work if you don't ever spend time together? Does it work great? How's a marriage work if you don't ever spend time together? Does it work great? So if we want things to work out, what do we got to do? We got to learn to uh, assemble together. God says, don't forget about that. What's he say? I want to praise the Lord with all my heart. Where? In the assembly. In the congregation. Gathered together. Gathered together in one place to praise the Lord. Here he goes. Now he's going to start to describe them. The works of the Lord, that capital L-O-R-D, see it again, that's Yahweh. The works of Yahweh are great. First thing we learn about God, God is great. That's not a stretch, right? God is great. What to say about him? His works are great. What do they do with the works of God? Studied by all who have pleasure in them. Right outside of Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge University. That's posted above the, above the door going into the laboratory. Studying the works of God. When it, specifically when it talks about the works of the Lord are great, he's talking about creation. He's talking about the things we can study in this world. And so... Once upon a time, great minds thought, you know what? Men who really take pleasure in studying God, this is where we come to do it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll make you take the signs off the wall, but the problem is some of these guys, they engraved it into the concrete and the stone, so you can't take that out. You can pull the Ten Commandments off of here and there and everywhere else, but if you ever have the opportunity to do a tour through Washington, D.C., and just go through all the monuments you know what's written in every one of them not just a few in every single one of them in the stone i bet they wish they could get putty and putty over it bible verses on them all bible verses on them all so the 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 concept laid out for us hey god's great and the works of god his creation is studied by all who have pleasure in them Next thing we see, His work is honorable and glorious. So God is honorable. God is glorious. And specifically, He's talking this word work, 
<coughs> in the English, it's a little boring because it's going to say work it means work means work for us. But this is speaking of His providence. That's how God works naturally in the supernatural. Those are the Godowinces. You guys know what I mean? Sometimes we call them coincidence, right? Well, it just so happened that. But the Bible calls them providence. God's providence. That God, creator and sustainer of all the world, He's at work. And the providence of God, that work of God, the providence of God is honorable. God has a purpose behind it all. And I I find comfort in that. Now, sometimes we might say, I can't understand how a good, loving God could allow these things to happen. And God doesn't give us all those answers. What He does say is, I, God, am honorable in the things I do, in the things that happen in your life. There's an honor to those things that are going on. They're honorable. They're glorious. And, the next word, righteous. What? How can that be? I don't always know. But I'm not about to take the glory of God away from Him and say that's not possible for you to work something good out of this situation. And give all the glory to the devil. Oh, the devil just, he won that round. (coughs) I don't buy it. I don't buy it. So God is... Honorable, God is glorious, and He is righteous. And what's it say about His righteousness? How long does it last? Last five days a week, six days a week, all seven, seven out of seven, twenty-four-seven. His righteousness endures forever. So when is God ever wrong? Where does it say that? Is this a subjective feeling? I just have a feeling that God's never wrong. Where does God tell me He's never wrong? Well, there there you go, John. So we say, look, that's what He has told us. He's condescended and revealed to us who He is. And He says, look, I'm not wrong. His righteousness endures forever. Forever. So God knows what He's doing. God, God, in, in God's plans and purposes are above me. I don't get them all. But I can say, that's what He said. And I believe what He said. I believe what he told me. I believe what his word lays out for me. So look at the next one. The next one says, The Lord, Yahweh, is gracious. So God is full of grace. Anybody experience the grace of God? So God is full of grace. What else is he full of? God is full of compassion. Man, that's pretty incredible, right? That's pretty incredible to realize that God is full of grace. And God is full of compassion. His desire to be grace, to be gracious, and His desire to show compassion. This is attributes, parts of who God is. Then He gives us some examples in verse 5. Look, He has given food to those who fear Him. He has given food to... When did He do that? In the Exodus. Remember the children of Israel? They left Egypt. They're walking around in the desert. Have you guys ever been to the desert, by the way? Don't try to tell me you live in a desert. It's not desert. We've had this discussion before. This is not a desert. John, I'm going to take you to the desert, brother. The desert that I'm where I come from, there's no critters. No little rock checks running around eating grass. You know why? No grass. No grass. No. And if you get thirsty, you better be a camel. 
Because there not no there's not one drop of water in Yucca Valley. There, let me say it again. Not one drop. Every drop of water comes from the Colorado River. The Colorado River pipes water. What a brilliant place to live, right? Hey, I know. Let's build a lot of houses in the middle of a desert where there's no water. Oh, good idea. Let's do that. You got to kind of wonder what people are thinking, right? Well, in that desert, even worse desert than that, I had an opportunity. If you come with us to Israel, I hope we're going to be able to do it. We went to Kadesh Barnea. So if you guys don't know, Kadesh Barnea is where the children of Israel came to the promised land. And they look in, you know, and, and they initially don't want to go, right? They don't go, they wander for 40 years, come back. Moses is not allowed to enter in. You stand at Kadesh Barnea, so we'll stand in the promised land. We'll be in Israel, and we'll stand there, and we'll look into the desert. And then you'll have an idea. Oh, that desert. There's not a thing there. Rock and sand. Rock and sand. Everywhere you look. So the children of Israel are in that place. And they're in a place where they have to learn to trust on God for everything that they have. Because in that desert, there was no water. In that desert, there was no food. You remember the people complaining? Oh, Lord, please give us some meat. Well, look around. There's no meat. The lizards and the snakes are smart enough not to live there. There's nothing. Nothing is in that place. So what does it say? He has given food. So God is giving. God gave them manna, right? He has given food to those who fear Him. Fear Him. That's, uh, that's an, anybody who has a relationship with God has that relationship with Him. Fear. I don't want to comfort you. That word fear means just what it sounds like. It means fear. Trust me. The day you see God, you'll say, well, I'm not having any problem at all conjuring up this concept of fear when I look at God. You'll, trust me. It, it'll come out natural. You have a relationship with God, you fear God. So he says, all those who fear him, all those who had a relationship with me, I fed them. I gave them manna. They got manna in the desert. Look what else it says. He says, I will ever be mindful. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. What's that mean? God has an incredible memory. How good's God's memory? He never forgets. What's he never forget? His promise. That's what the word covenant means. I'll never forget my promise that I made to you. God made you any promises? We open up the book and read through the New Testament. Are there promises of God in here? One of the ones I, I love to look at is the promise that Jesus gave as he was sending his disciples out. He said, I will be with you forever, even until the end of the age. Right? He said, go, make disciples. And lo, I am with you. How long? Always. Even to the end of the age. That word, end of the age, means the end of time. So he says, I'm always with you. Jesus said it another way. I will never leave you or forsake you. So he is always with us. He says, I will always remember my promise to you. God always remembers. And, and verse 6, he has declared to his people the power of his works. Listen, if it wasn't for God condescending and laying out for us this incredible book that we have opportunity to study, we, none of us would know this story. Would you? I mean, really, how great of a nation is Israel? When you go there, we're not going to have any problem driving across it in half a day or less. And the only reason it could take that long is you've got to go through all these checkpoints. 
and bomb checks and all that stuff. But yeah, it's not a big deal. Hey, are you watch the news lately? They're saying nice just everywhere. Just liable, liable to blow up here as we are there. Last I checked, we don't have bomb checks here. At least they got them over there. Anyhow, we'll drive across a small, little, tiny place. Dealing with a, pe- a group of people that has a, 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 a history that goes back to 3500 B.C. In fact, when we go to Israel, we'll get to stand outside of what's called Abraham's Gate. It dates back to 3500 B.C. When, when's the last time you've seen something from that far back? That's a long time ago, in case you're wondering. <laughs> That's like just under 6,000 years ago. Whoa, crazy, right? A gate that Abraham walked through. The gate of the ancient city of Dan. It's incredible, incredible. It's called the Mud Gate. But nonetheless, we, we go there and have all this history that goes back all that time in this little bitty place. Now, with the exception of maybe a couple of history buffs, most of us in here don't know that much information about Persia, do we? Or Greece, or probably not many of us know all that much about Rome. Who had much greater impact on the world than Israel did. But what come out of Israel? This story about Messiah and God's condescension to mankind and His expression of redemption through grace. And that has been passed down for over 6,000 years. And many of us have this book sitting on our lap. How does that happen? Well, I'll tell you. You might not like it. God. That's how it happens. That's how He got it to you. That's how He got it where you are. He has declared His works. God showed us, right? He's declared His works. He's brought them to us. It says, In giving them the heritage of the nation, the promised land, the works of His hands are verity and justice. Verity and justice. What are we talking about? God is faithful and God is just. You can always count on God. God is faithful. God is just. And His precepts are sure. What does that mean? His word is eternal. His word is eternal. Look, everybody who studies uh, New Testament reliability, Old Testament is not really even argued about, New Testament reliability will, will make the case that there are more existing copies of New Testament documents than any other ancient book on the face of the earth. Any. All of them. There's so many copies. People were copying this thing like crazy. It's everywhere. So many copies that we can't possibly lose anything that God gave us because we can look and see. Oh, look, it was in this copy and it came out of this one. This one's earlier than that one. Hey, that should be there. It's not hard. The, the study of it is called textual criticism. And it's an incredible opportunity to take a look and to know that the Word of God is sure. It's internal. It's eternal. God's hand, His, His hand is over it. They stand fast forever and ever, just in case you think I, I was making that up. The Word of the Lord, His precepts last how long? Forever and ever. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle. Two smallest marks in the writing of the Bible. The two smallest marks. Even those things won't pass away. So can we believe that we have what He said we have? Sure. Do we have to be afraid that that we got to learn to, to study and understand uh, what all that stuff means? Yeah, we don't have to be afraid of that. That's life, folks. 
We've got to study things all the time, don't we? We've got to learn how to do things. We've got to learn how to understand what God's Word lays out for us. We can be sure. Uh, it says, they are done in truth and uprightness. They are done in truth and uprightness. Next thing that God is, He sent redemption to His people. It is God who redeems. In Isaiah, Yahweh said, I alone am the Savior. There is no other. How many saviors are there? One. What's his name? Yahweh. Yahweh is a Savior. What does Jesus mean? Yahweh saves. It really kind of makes sense, right? <laughs> Put all those pieces together. Well, he's a Redeemer. And God, or he has commanded his covenant, his promise forever. How long is God's promise good? Forever. Then we have two other things. God is holy. And it says holy and awesome is his name. His character. That's what that means. Holy and awesome is his name. That means God's character is holy. That means totally other, transcendent, above, beyond what we can think and imagine. That's kind of the idea of holy, set apart. And awesome. That's the idea of fearful. You know that he is big. He is massive. He's incredible. Uh, words go beyond our ability to describe it. So these are just a list, a variety of things. We work our way through this psalm that describes what God's like. Then he tells us what to do about it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the first place we start is the fear of the Lord. Yeah, the fear of the Lord. Bow our knee. You are God and I am not. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and a good understanding. Have all those who, what's that next word? Do His commandments. All those who did what? Do. His commandments is another term for His word, guys. Commandments, precepts, uh, teachings, all those things come out of the same concept. He's talking about the word that, the God has give, that God has given us. Do we do it? James said it like this. Don't be hearers only, but... Doers of the word. Not hearers only, just doers. Do what, what God's word lays out for us. Then, then we slide from that psalm to the next one. It starts how? Hallelujah. And what's it do? It gives us an acrostic of what the man of God looks like. So look at the man of God. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Right? Starts right out the gate. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Fears Yahweh. Who delights greatly in his commandments. I want you to notice that second word. Who did what? Who delights. Delights. In fact, the Bible says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that a good verse? Delight yourself in the law of the Lord. Delight yourself in the book God has given us. Delight yourself in the Word of God. Pour that stuff in. And what's God say? I'm going to change the things you want. That's what that verse means. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you. He'll put His desire in your heart. So what happens? The man of God starts to look like God. The man of God starts to act like God. Look what happens. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. So first, the man of God is blessed. The man of God is blessed. His descendants are mighty. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house. Second thing we see about the man of God, he's going to be rich. He's going to be rich. Now there are some people who will tell you that. He's going to be rich. 
What does it say? Where is the wealth and riches going to be? In his house. In the, in the Bible, when it talks about his house, that doesn't mean he's going to have like a 25-bedroom mansion. What was his house? That's his family. That's his people. Where's all his wealth and riches going to be? Where is he going to be blessed? Where is he going to enjoy? It doesn't mean he doesn't have riches. I'm just saying he's going to be blessed in his house. He's going to be blessed in his family. He's going to be blessed in that, in that part of his life that God is going to, to have his hand upon him. Abraham, who only really had a couple of kids, right? Isaac and Ishmael, was a blessed man, wasn't he? Didn't he know great things, have a great greatness within his house, within his family? He's going to be blessed. And his righteousness endures forever. So the man of God is what? Remember, this is talking about the man of God, not God. So what's the righteousness? The man of God starts to take on. You see, he starts to take on some of these attributes. He's righteous. He's righteous. It means he don't want to live in the dark. In fact, the New Testament tells us if you're happy living in the dark, then you may not belong to him. If you're satisfied living in the dark, living in your sin. In fact, the the scripture in, in 1 John tells us if you'll practice sin, which means live in it, then you're not his. That doesn't mean you never sin. It just means I don't want to live in it. I don't want to camp out, sit down and say, yes, I'm king of the sin hill. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. So the man of God, he's righteous. And unto the upright, there arises light in the darkness. So he has light. He has light. The Bible tells us the word of God's a light. Psalm 119. Thy word is a light. A light. Thy word is a lamp. He's showing us the way so we know where to go, right? This is what he's talking about. The man of God, he has light. There's light in the darkness. We look around. This world's pretty dark, isn't it? But I can know right from wrong. I can know what to do, what not to do. All I got to do is hold fast to the word that God condescended and gave to me. Hold fast to that word and say, you know, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do his word. Now what do I have? A light. In a dark place. I can experience that's what the man of God does. That's what the man of God does. Look what else. He is gracious and full of compassion. Didn't we read that exact same line about God? That God was gracious, only it said Yahweh, remember, is gracious and full of compassion. Now what does it say about the man of God? He's gracious and what? And and full of compassion. Why is that? Because you become like the God you serve. You become like the God you serve. And so, what do we see? Graciousness and compassion and righteousness all flowing from the man of God. Why? Because we reflect Yahweh. We reflect Him. He's perfect, we're not. But we reflect. That light hits us and reflects off. So we become like the God we serve. A good man deals graciously and lends. So what do we see? He's generous. What did we see about God? Wasn't God generous? A good man, a godly man, he's generous. He will guide his affairs with discretion. So a, a godly man is wise. Is wise. You know that the Bible tells that in Christ are held all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what, how much is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? It's in Colossians. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Does that cover everything? 
Does it, does it cover every aspect? Is there some part of this world that God doesn't know anything about? God knows about most things, but he doesn't know anything about engineering. Or God knows most things, but he doesn't know anything about English or history or biology. So God doesn't know nothing about that. What does it say? In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then in James it says, if any of you lack wisdom, what are we supposed to do? Ask, and what what will God do? He says he'll give it. So if he's got it, and he says, I'll give it if you ask, does he do it? Does he do it? In him. So what do we know? The man of God. The man of God has wisdom. Uh, Surely he will never be shaken. So the man of God is stable. Right? He's able to stand. It doesn't mean that the world won't shake, right? Just the man won't be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. So how long does God remember the righteous? That's a long time, right? That's a long time. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. So the man of God is courageous. The man of God is not freaking out about ISIS. The man of God is not dumb. I'm not saying don't be, don't be smart. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying the man of God is not afraid of evil tidings. Is there another way you would describe the plans of ISIS? I would describe it as evil tidings. Are you okay with that? Evil tidings? Do, I, do they mean evil? Yes, they mean evil. Do they mean to destroy? Yes, they mean to destroy. Do I have to be freaked out? Yeah, John's got enough ammo. We all go over to his house and we'll be okay. Actually, that's not true. Dave Plew's got more ammo than you. Holy cow. Oh, is this going out on the internet? Now the FBI knows Dave Plew has all that ammunition. So I'll be with you, brother, when they come. (laughs) Now they are listening. Okay, I better stop while I'm ahead. But the man of God, he's courageous. He's not afraid of evil tidings. So he doesn't let that stuff wipe him out. Why? Because if you bow the knee to God, do you have to bow the knee to anybody else? Nobody else. There's one being on a face of the, of the universe to which we must uh, be afraid. That's God. After that, nobody else. Nobody else is worthy of your fear. Nobody else. They don't deserve it. They're just not all that frightening. Run around in their black PJs. What? They're not all that frightened. The worst they can do is, is move me from here to God's presence. Well, that's not too tough. A child can do that. A three-year-old can do that. Can? So, uh, that don't make them all that. It's certainly not anything to be afraid of. They're courageous. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. The man of God is faithful. He has trust in God, right? Isn't that the reason why he's not afraid of anything else? Yeah, because he trusts in God. Because why? Because God told us the end from the beginning. We know that God's going to win. We know that he's going to establish his kingdom. We know that there's a lot of events that happen between now and then. And I know he tells me 366 times, I don't have to be afraid. He only ever tells me to fear one thing. Fear God. And then don't be afraid of nothing else. Don't got to be afraid 
of nothing else. So he's faithful. He trusts in God. That God knows what he's doing. His trust is in Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. His heart is established, is strong. The, the, the heart of the man of God is strong. Now, what's that mean? Jesus said, if you want to know how to make your heart strong, remember to always pray. Because the reason men's hearts fail, I'm not talking about heart attacks. I'm talking about losing heart. The reason men lose heart is because they don't pray. So he says, pray. Men ought always not to lose heart. Men ought always to pray. So his heart is strong. And he will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. So he's not afraid of his enemies, not afraid of what they're going to do. He's not freaking out. He's wise. He's prudent. He's got all these things, all these attributes of God that pass over to him. He doesn't worry about it because when the Bible says that God is going to rule and reign, that means God is going to rule and reign. When the Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, what's going to happen? At the name of Jesus, what's going to happen? Half of the people will bow and half of them won't? world's full of people who talk tough right now. Full of people who talk tough. Yeah, I don't care. I'm never going to bow to God. Both. The Word says you're going to bow. You're going to bow just like everybody else is going to bow. It will happen. It is a foregone conclusion. Those things are going to take place. He says in verse 9, He has dispersed abroad. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And his horn will be exalted with honor. So we see that the man of God is giving. You see all the parallels? The man of God is giving, God is giving. We see those things transferring across from one to the other. And so as he's looking at it, he says, look, this is what he does. He dispersed abroad. That means he's willing to help people all over the place. He's willing to help people. In fact, God is very... It's very important to God that we treat the alien among us very kindly. That's not always the talk of the candidates, by the way. And you may think, you don't like it, you're right along there with them. I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. It says, be good to the alien among you. It wasn't strange that in Israel there would be people in Israel who were not from Israel. And if they were not from Israel and they were poor and destitute and sick and couldn't take care of themselves, God said, help them. Help them. You think if God told Israel, who's, by the way, in those particular times of history, not the richest country on the face of the earth like the United States, that somehow he'll, he'll look a blind eye to our unwillingness to help others? We waste more money on on overpriced toilets on aircraft carriers, if we had all that money back and we just tried to feed people with it, you don't think we could do it? You don't think this nation... I think our, I think we could feed them all. I think we could. I think we could have. I don't Maybe we can't now. But once upon a time, I think we could have. But it really didn't matter to us, right? But that's not the way God... God God's attitude toward the alien is different than ours. That's all I'm saying. God's attitude toward the alien, that's different than ours. The alien among us. I'm not talking about the alien trying to do you harm. I'm talking about just the alien, the hungry guy who's not from here. The person who's injured, not from here. 
When Jesus was talking about loving your neighbor, what story did he use? The good Samaritan. Why? Because the Samaritan was such a well-looked-at person? Oh, he was hated by everybody. He was hated by everybody. But he becomes the example of what it means to love your neighbor. And then he tells us, his horn shall be exalted with honor. That The word, the horn, is a symbol of power. It was a symbol of power in ancient poetry. All over the, all over the place, when you hear the horn, it's talking about power. So, so what it's saying is it's saying that, that his power will be exalted with honor. That means he's blessed. God's hand is upon the man of God. He's going to have what he needs for the journey. He's going to have what he needs for what's in front of him. You're not going to have it early. Remember Corey Timboom? Everybody know who she is? She went into Nazi concentration camps. She wasn't a Jew. She was a Christian. She goes into to, to, to Nazi concentration camps for trying to save Jews from the Nazis. She was German. They take her, put her in a concentration camp. She remembered talking to her father before they went to the concentration camp. And she said, I used to go to my dad. And I used to tell my dad, we're going on a train ride. Dad, I want my ticket now. And her dad would say, no. I want my ticket now. No. When we get on the train, I'll give you the ticket. Later on in her life, when she's struggling with the idea of why God wasn't giving her all the stuff she needed for whatever was going on in her life now, she remembered that story by her dad. The Lord gives us what we need when we need it. He's not going to fill your storeroom necessarily before you need it. But He'll give you what you need. He'll give you what you need when you need it. So, then it goes on in verse 10. Look, Psalm 111 ends with an invitation uh, for man's response. And Psalm 112 ends with the futility of the alternative. The futility of not responding to the fear of the Lord. Look what it says. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. So the man of God, lots of good things. The guy without God, not so good, right? The man of God, good things. Not, no God, not so good. So we want to... We didn't make it through three psalms, sorry. The, we, it's kind of shocking. It's kind of shocking. I actually thought I was going to make it, but oh well. It happens that way sometimes. But So we have that important two acrostic psalms, both beginning with hallelujah, praise the Lord. 22 lines on one describing what God's like, 22 lines in the other describing what the man of God is like. So if you ever want to be able to do a comparison, just work your way through those two psalms and take a look. Yes, sir. That's right. And when Corey Timbu died, her tree died. Yeah. So they replanted this little tree in the Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's a cool story. Uh, the exact day, exact moment. Yeah, there's other cool stories there too. Hey, we get to go to Yad Vashem. We'll we'll spend a little bit of time Yad Vashem. That's the Holocaust Museum. It's kind of a cool thing to walk through. Well, you know what I mean when you get there. It's not really cool, but it's neat. Nope, not that either. Anyways. I don't know what, what word to describe it. English teacher, help me out. 
Overwhelming is a good word. It's pretty overwhelming. There, I'll tell you, my favorite place, Yad Vashem. Uh, so I guarantee we'll go because it's my favorite place at Yad Vashem. There's a memorial in the back after you walk through all the museum. And you walk into the door, and in the door there's, there's a, a man. I don't remember the man's name. Maybe somebody else remembers his name. He's a, a Catholic uh, a priest. And all over him are children. On his shoulder, it's a, it's a sculpture of how he and the children went into the, to the gas uh, rooms to, to be killed. And they didn't want the, the priest to go in, but he said, I'm not leaving my kids. It was an orphanage, and he's like, nope. It's me and a kid, we go to the same place everywhere. So, so they went in, and this whole monument is to all the lost, just the children that were lost in the Holocaust. And you walk in, and it's pitch black. And in the background, they're reading names, and they're just saying their name and how old they were. And their name and how old they were. And in the middle of it, I, I don't exactly know how it's all built, but in the very middle is one candle. And then the place is full of mirrors. And it literally looks like a million little lights everywhere, you know, bouncing off of different places. And it's pretty incredible to, to walk through there. Two things that you do there. You walk through and you think, man, this place is incredible. And then the second thing you think, there's no end to the evil man will do. If you think there's an end to the evil man can do, you're crazy. Because the world we live in, whatever the Holocaust was, the world we live in now, way beyond that. Way, we left that in the dust. Only six million. Stalin did better than that. So, but it's an incredible opportunity. So hopefully you guys will all get to come with me. Um, <laughs> let's pray on that happy note.